BFBS. Radio 2. Sit with Christopher Lee. Hello there. Vicky Turner, thank you. And the BFBS News team. I am Christopher Lee, and you, you are very welcome at today's Sit Round Table in the next hour. Nuclear warheads, a thousand here, a thousand there, but who's counting? Korea, it's getting gritty. But is it, is it just another day at the unfinished war? China, a proper superpower, telling America how it is? Obama, is he waiting for the United Kingdom to quit Afghanistan? Afghanistan itself, hope on hold for President Karzai's peace jerger. Middle East, the Blair Bush experiment and the damage to the United Kingdom, and the new surge, this time it's intelligence gathering. Iraq, let out more al-Qaeda, let off more bombs. SDR, the defence review, already the experts wonder if it'll be worth the paper it's written on. Torture inquiry, yet another cover-up, behind too many closed doors. Wargaming, Israel versus Iran, a non-win battle of wits. And Dunkirk, the little ships are sailing in. Well, at the SITREP roundtable this week from the Department of Peace Studies at the University of Bradford, Paul, uh, Professor Paul Rogers, Dr Rosemary Hollis from City University here in London, and Dr Marty McCauley from University College London. Let's start with that conference which finishes, Paul, tomorrow, the UN Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty Review Conference finishes tomorrow. What do they say tomorrow? It's difficult to say what's going to come out of it. There's a lot been going on behind the scenes. Uh, It's been rather overshadowed by the row almost about the possibility of a Middle East nuclear-free zone. There's Iran in the background, there's the status of Israeli nuclear weapons. Behind it all, you have to say there's been something of an improvement in relations between the Americans and the Russians, not directly involving the treaty negotiations, but in the background, and that's a good thing. Um, The Americans have come up pretty clearly with the numbers of warheads they have. The French have done the same. Britain did the same yesterday. Um, Behind the scenes, this view that we've got to move at some stage to a nuclear-free world... This won't be a disastrous conference, uh, unlike the one five years ago, but it doesn't look like it's going to be a sterling success. It's going to lead a lot of unfinished business, but at least it reminds people that we still have to get a handle on proliferation and that we haven't done, and and the big fear there, of course, will be Iran. Rosemary, this this point about um, uh, the Middle East, it's been one of the important points right the way through uh, this conference, hasn't it, that you've got to get something going, we'll call, we'll call it a nuclear free zone in the Middle East. Well, you can't have one because you've already got one country, Israel, with nuclear weapons. Yes, the players in the, in the region went round this issue back in the 1990s as a result of the Madrid peace conference that the Americans started after the um, <clears throat> liberation of Kuwait in 1991. They had a multilateral dialogue on regional security, and the Egyptians used that platform for exactly the same thing, that the, the region should be nuclear-free and that uh, Israel had to come clean. And that, ever since, has stymied every conversation about security in the Middle East as a big region because that is the stumbling block. Right. Martin McCauley. <laughs> Tell me, I mean, I was interested, a lot of people would probably say, uh, when William Hague, the Foreign Secretary, said on Tuesday, I think it was, that the United Kingdom will retain a maximum of 225 warheads, that's 160 operational, which we knew about, had known about since, what, 2006, uh, plus 65 in maintenance. Um, surprising, perhaps, so few? Well, um, given the fact that uh, nobody envisages using them, 
Uh, is it 225 or 325 or 125? I think it's symbolic. The number's symbolic. And uh, you have to have them in, in, in the present world. You have to have them because you have... Why do you have to have them? You have, have a place at the top table. People take it seriously. Do we still actually sort of believe I, that? I think that's still because China is, of course, becoming the, the future nuclear power. And China will not respect any country which doesn't have them. It's a, it's a different... They'll be in Division 2. So that if you want to talk to the Chinese about nuclear weapons, you have to have them yourself. And the only country in the Middle East next to Israel which is capable of getting uh, nuclear weapons is Iran, which more, uh, it's more or less inevitable they will get them. And the, the, the trouble will be how you, how you manage that. And then you, the, perhaps you can bring China into it. But, but on that prestige argument, uh, and this is being used as an argument against Iran being enabled to go ahead with weapon capability, that Egypt and Turkey would feel obliged to follow suit because they can't be second tier. But see, the other top table stuff, you know, Pakistan's not at the top table, <laughs> India's not at the top table. It, it is sort of early Cold War sort of uh, labelling. That's we why we call it. Because India's becoming a yeah. member of the top table, you see. Financially. Uh, and after that, not you'll, have Brazil, you'll have Brazil. It'll be interesting to see how Brazil reacts in South America, because Brazil sees itself, if you like, as the leader of South America now, vis-a-vis uh, -vis uh, the United States. That's the interesting case, because Brazil was on the nuclear weapons path back in the early 1980s, along with Argentina. And when they went over to civilian rule, the countries effectively agreed not to go for a nuclear arms race. Now, Brazil does have a, a large new uh, uranium enrichment plant, a commercial plant. It could go nuclear in terms of nuclear weapons. There's no sign it wants to at present. Uh, and uh, no indications, because for a start, it would completely wreck the Latin American nuclear zone treaty. It's interesting, isn't it, Paul, that, uh, that Brazil is one of the countries that's been acting as the go-between with Iran yes. for the reprocessing yes. with Turkey. Yeah. Uh, so Americans said, well, well, you know, do trust these people. Yes, yeah, true, true. <laughs> now, I, I agree with one of the American columnists who said that the Americans moved the goalposts. Uh, the, the outrage and the peak when Brazil and Turkey came up with this deal was a bit revealing. It's, you know, either we do it or we don't like it. Can somebody tell me, though, where this whole, um, uh, this whole process of reducing weapons and who can reduce them, the Russians say, oh, well, we just keep this to uh, sort of strategic weapons, don't want to include non-strategic weapons, where does this fit in with NATO's new strategic concept, which... We're all supposed to be waiting for November to get it stamped and saying, this is brilliant, this is the future of the world secure. Well, NATO in many ways is in a real mess because it has all the different problems in relations with Russia, the expanded membership, and bluntly all the problems in Afghanistan. I mean, the first major NATO out-of-area operation on any sort of scale has been Afghanistan, uh, and it's really running into the, into the sand. Uh, NATO is talking the big talk about the new strategic concept, but underneath that there is a, a huge amount of unease and it really is a papering over the cracks at present. Um, the Liberal, former Liberal leader, um, uh, Ming Campbell, says it's illogical not to consider the future of Trident within the upcoming strategic defence review. Mm. Uh, it, it's been ruled out by everybody. Is Trident... You, you don't uh, you touch don't it. Touch Even it. Mr. Clegg says, OK, you know, we, we, we go along with the idea of renewal. That sounds a bit 
Well, the, the costs are huge. If, if you're talking about lifetime costs, then it's, it's getting on for $100 billion. A lot of it's front-loaded. I mean, Aldermaston alone is costing about a billion a year, and that's just basically research, development, production. Uh, and I think the, the problem is that if you're going to go for like-for-like, like, four big new missile submarines to replace existing ones, then that is a very big system. It's not going to happen, though. Um, well, they want it to happen. I, I think it's getting less and less likely. But how, then, do you work this strategic defence review if you don't include it? Yeah. And going back to the prestige thing, is this the end of... Well, one of the factors that enables Britain to stay on the internet on the UN Security Council. Yeah, can I ju just, ju just finally on this, um, there are a lot of other issues such as verification, there's the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty, you can sign something, but you don't necessarily ratify it, you don't do anything about it. But there is this sense I get from you, Paul, that perhaps this New York conference is, is, is the best so far in a treaty that's been going around since the 70s. Well, it, it's the best for maybe 15 years, but the trouble is, you know, the treaty does actually require the major nuclear states to go for serious disarmament, and they're only going half the way. So, yes, uh, it, relative to what happened in 2000 and 2005, uh, the situation is rather better. But in the long-term scheme of things, uh, I, I, I wouldn't agree. I mean, it, it, we're not making the progress that we need to make. It'd be very easy, for example, for Britain just to say, we're going to go down to two submarines worth of, of warheads, that's 96, to go down below 100. Now that, as, as Martin says, I mean, it's, it's all symbolic, but symbolism is quite important here, and that would be a very easy unilateral thing to do. Right. I mean, uh, we, haven't, we, haven't, we haven't even discussed um, uh, the North Koreans uh, <laughs> and, and their capability. This is why, isn't it, anybody, this is why what's going on in North Korea at the moment, saying that it's going to scrap an agreement which is supposed to prevent accidental naval clashes with South Korea, few people might say it's a bit late for that but I mean it, it, this is why it's important because now you're dealing with somebody who perhaps is a proper nuclear power party. Yes and it, uh, interesting enough apparently Kim Jong-il um, awarded uh, medals or, or something else to those involved in uh, 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 torpedoing the South Korean lunchboxes, probably. Uh, lunchbox. But, but it apparently did something but also the other significant thing was when he was recently in Beijing Apparently, the uh, the uh, his tour was cut short, and presumably either Wen Jiabao, the the Chinese prime minister, or Hu Jintao, the president, said something he didn't like, and presumably that was you shouldn't have done that, and he he got the huffs. We still had it. Then he went why. back to Pyong, uh, I mean, Pyongyang. Has anybody, uh, any it, you it, three, got a doubt whether it happened that way? Well, well, ah, because I was going to say. Uh, North Korea and Iran have been played differently by Washington and there's a kind of, when you're doing it to one, you're not doing it to the other. So we have the Bush administration thinking that diplomacy was the only way to deal with North Korea, but uh, beat on Iran and Obama seemed to have reversed that and the net result is that neither the sanctions and the pressure nor the engagement work. I mean, you try one and they'll wind you up that way. And then if you try the other, they'll dig in the what, other way. What Kim Jong-il, I never can't remember, is he the blessed leader or a beloved leader? I can't remember which one it is. But he is, he is but, but he is a godlike figure, isn't he? Yeah. I mean, just as his dad was, etc. He mother. was a dear leader. Yeah, mm. a dear leader. Anyway... I mean, what he would really like, there we had yesterday, just just a stopover flight almost, that the, the United States uh, Secretary of State, Hillary Clinton, 
was in South Korea in Seoul talking about this. What he would like is her to go to North Korea. That would be status, wouldn't it? That it's would be classic rattle out of the pram stuff. Mm. But well, he's rattling, he's rattling warheads. I mean, this is a bit more... Exactly, it's yeah, terrifying. It, it, it shows how weak North Korea is. There, there are analyses which say the country uh, is on the verge of collapse. There's a big rise in maladministration and corruption within North yeah, Korea. And apparently there's conflict two. within the military yeah. over who's going to succeed Kim Jong-il and so on. And the key player is China. And China's foreign policy has one objective. Don't get involved in any conflict resolution. Don't say nice platitudes and say nice but things. China doesn't want some punch-up. Don't up get on. involved. They certainly don't want a punch-up and they don't want an internal coming apart because they'll yeah. just get millions of refugees mm. flowing across the Yalu River. Um, it, it's, it's a really difficult but, one in many ways. Yeah. If, if, if uh, Hu Jintao did in fact put uh, Kim Jong-un's uh, nose out of joint and he went off to Pyongyang, does that mean that China has lost influence, that China now has no influence over North Korea? But, of course, it depends on oil and food and other mm. things from North from China so, and so on. So um, we have to wait to see. You see, can I just, just one quick question, and then I'm going to talk to Kerry Brown from Chatham House about this. Um, is this the sort of situation where you do get, it suddenly gets out of hand because of miscalculations? I, I was thinking yeah. of the whole Soviet-American standoff and trying to read the signals from the other side and inventing all kinds of rationales for the other's behaviour and whether it was mirror imaging or what it was. But in this instance, it seems to me much more about developing bargaining on the basis of what seems to have worked from experience. Yeah. And once you get attention by doing something dangerous, it's an encouragement to try it again. Right. Um, Dr. Kerry Brown, uh, from the London think tank, Shattered House, on the line now. I, I don't know if you heard that, Kerry. I was just wondering um, whether this was just another, just another thing that's going on, another bad day at the office sort of thing, and that we, we could build this up into something, uh, well, six months' time, uh, don't worry about it. Or is it the sort of miscalculation area that we all worry about? Well, I think there are two things. One is that the sunshine policy that's um, been pursued by South Korea towards North Korea for over a decade is uh, uh, at most are really badly on hold and, and may well have been completely pushed offline. And I think we're in a sort of very different kind of period now uh, because formally, uh, although Kaesong is still as a kind of you know investment zone, there are still South Koreans working there. And as far as I know, at the moment, the routes to it are okay um but apart from that there are no other real links and they're um you know kind of completely isolated now both south and north korea are basically not talking to each other and that's not been true since the mid-90s and then the second thing is that you're looking at a dictatorship a regime in north korea that's on its last legs i mean that doesn't mean it's going to fall tomorrow uh, but it's got a dictator in kim jong-il who as we saw when he was in beijing last week is obviously very ill and has uh, you know weakened quite a bit quite a bit and uh, a, an economy which seems to be going back to where it was in the mid-1990s with real possibilities of starvation and famine. And, uh, you know, the kind of real possibility that either, uh, you know, soon or even if it's a sort of five years down the line, you know, this is not a sustainable regime. It's in terrible, terrible problems. And I guess the problem then is, well, it uh, reacts extremely irrationally as it sort of goes deeper into these problems. Uh, and, you know, kind of that, that really is the sort of great joker. 
Martin McCauley, I don't know if you heard him, was saying, well, you know, China is the key to this. Um, one gets the idea that China is the only friend North Korea has, but um, I just wondered what sort of control can China have over a, a regime that is sometimes erratic? Yeah, I mean, Russia sometimes is said to have had some influence. Historically, it did, of course, until it withdrew economically, at least, in the late 1980s, early 1990s. And, you know, the Russians have said that they're going to look at the evidence. Uh, they have expressed a sort of, not scepticism, but a caution, like the Chinese. I guess the bottom line is that in the last 10 years, Kim Jong-il himself has gone to China, I think, four times. I think he's been to Russia at most twice, probably once, if I remember rightly. And there you have it. You know, the real kind of link is with um, China and only China. Now, of course, China, as I think one of your speakers said earlier, you know, is, is uh, the one with the real traction, the real influence. It's got 90% of the energy going to North Korea is from China, 50% of the aid. That's probably more now because other aid is being withdrawn. Uh, it's all coming from China. It's got huge political links. and It's extremely important. China is very, very reluctant to get too involved. But I think in this case, it's really not going to be able to avoid it. Uh, and on top of what's happening in Iran and also Pakistan uh, through the UN, I think China finds this extremely unwelcome. But uh, my guess is that it's going to do something because it can't let things get out of control. Uh, I was interested in, in uh, uh, Hillary Clinton's visit to Beijing. It seemed a good business-like vi a visit. Um, nobody got annoyed with each other. And yes, they have got a big subject there. But it's very important, isn't it, to the Americans, especially the whole relationship with Chinese, uh, with, 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 with China, especially in terms of would, could they persuade China to devalue their currency because business wants it to do so. So it's a bit, much bigger story than simply what to do about North Korea. Yeah, I mean, they've had a very difficult time over the last few months, really since the end of last year. And they've got more than enough on their plate at the moment. This is very, very unwelcome. It seems to go around in cycles. Last year in April during the G2, G, sorry, G20 in London, uh, North Korea started launching, you know, missiles and doing nuclear tests. And we've ended up, you know, almost a year later in a similar kind of position. I think, um, you know, America has stuck pretty close to the South Koreans and has given them a lot of support. Obama basically came out as soon as President Lee made his statement a couple of days ago, blaming the North Koreans for the sinking of the boat um, by saying he fully supported what their report said. There is some scepticism in South Korea. I've heard people say that they think it's uh, not entirely possible. Uh, you know, there's some doubt about what actually um, happened. Uh, you know, so we have to sort of remember this isn't entirely proven, uh, but the Americans have thrown their full weight behind it. And I think, you know, that's probably right that um, with all the sorts of other issues at the moment about the revaluation, trade deficits, the need to have uh, China supporting sanctions on Iran, the need to have China supporting a whole host of things. Uh, this is, uh, you know, an area which is just one of many at the moment. And, uh, you know, it's a kind of extraordinarily complicated time, I think, for China and for the United States dealing with the region. Kerry Brown, Senior Fellow of the Asian Programme at Chatham House. Thank you very much indeed. Um, I, I was saying earlier, I mean, do we know that the North Koreans really sunk this? Um, but we do in these international situations. I'm not asking 
any you one of you. You're asking a Tonkin golf <laughs> question. I'm asking a Tonkin golf Tonkin question. question, yes. uh, well, question. What, what you can, I mean, the, the Corvette was, was blown in two. Whatever yeah. hit it was either a torpedo or a very big mine. Yes. Very mm. unlikely to be an accident internal explosion. It was in a very tricky position. I mean, that particular island is about 10 miles from the North Korean coast and about 100 miles from the South Korean coast. It's one of the islands which South Korea controls, but is actually very close to one side to North Korea. So it was in a very tricky area, one of the areas where the tensions are highest. That doesn't mean that the North Koreans did it, and it's always possible that it was an element within the North Korean Navy, rather than ordered from Pyongyang itself. You could actually get some, I don't mean an overzealous submarine commander, um, but you can get somebody who sort of looks and says, this is it. Or somebody's been told to go out and cause an incident. Nothing to do with, uh, with, with the leader. I mean, what you can say is the North Koreans have done this kind of thing before on, e- on an even bigger scale in the past. Not in recent years, but 15, 20, 25 years ago, you had these kinds of incidents. I mean, remember the USS Pueblo. Yeah, you know, a long time back, and that but that was an intelligence gathering yes, vessel, yes, was, and yes, a true. legitimate target. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. also, wasn't there a bombing of uh, of uh, what was it a, a conference centre or something? That's like right. That? Yes, or a hotel yeah. where uh, delegates were t- staying. Basically, what you're saying is that the North Koreans are in fact rational decision makers. Uh, if you see this as something which they planned as a provocation and saying, this is a pinprick, if we do this, then we get that reaction and then we'll do that and so on. You're presuming that uh, at the very top, this vertical control, uh, you're presuming that the armed forces carry out all the orders and so on. Uh, and then the big question is, is that true? I don't think it's presuming that. It's experimenting with that possibility. But it, for an element to have decided that this is the moment to uh, create an incident doesn't, it doesn't of Kim, have Kim to Jong-un, be a hierarchical independent decision Independent of Kim, yes, Kim but Jong-un. with a plan. Well, then he's lost control. You'll have civil war in North Korea. But it's still rational. OK, listen... Um, can we just take this, put this in, in context of, of the United States? Um, because the United States at the moment is the player, and, you know, he's our president sort of thing. Um, the United States hasn't played this, um, uh, has it, the best way with Korea all the time. They did some, they got the negotiations going, but nobody knows how to play North Korea, nor, nor Iran. And we say, Kim Jong-il, basket case. Ahmadinejad, basket case. Well, but actually, are they? No. They're not, are they? not, not Ahmadinejad. No, no. no. no exactly. presume they're rational decision makers uh, and they're, they're rising powers. Well, come on. Uh, look, in terms of international affairs, we abandoned this whole idea of rational actors in the 1990s. We're now into identity politics. And you do things because it, 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 it reinforces your national stand. You make yourself a martyr because that's how you want to die and that's how you want to make a splash. Everybody's been told their national story or their ideological story or their religious story and what we thought were rational actions in terms of cause and effect in material terms have had to be supplanted with a whole bundle of other motivations. And in that case, Ahmadinejad is doing very well. 
is, and he's still there. Mm. Number of people have said, aha, the supreme leader, he'll get rid of him if he thinks he, he won't get rid of him. <laughs> Listen, uh, on the line, someone else they won't get rid of, the Professor of International Relations and Political Science at the University of uh, Southern Utah, Michael Stathis. Michael, I don't know if you heard any of that, but we were just wondering about Ahmadinejad, Kim Jong-il. Um, they're not basket cases. They're actually got the, the remaining world superpower on, on, on the run. Is that how it's seen in Washington? Well, it seems like, uh, what, what is the, the the key phrase? All hell is breaking loose this week. And um, events in Iran and certainly in Korea uh, are, are not helping. And um, I, I can see President Obama this week literally tearing uh, his, his hair out. Uh, uh, he's gone from a full plate to uh, an incredibly full plate. Yeah, I mean, I just noticed, I mean, watching the markets last night as they dropped and dropped and dropped, and I said, oh, well, they'll recover today because when it when they drop, they always recover, and they haven't. Um, and he's got oil spillage, hasn't he? Wall, Wall, Wall Street spillage, Iraq, Afghanistan not going according to the script. Well, you know, I was thinking about the script uh, late, late last night, and uh, oh, the list of things uh, you know going uh, wrong right now: um, uh, Korea, uh, uh, rising anti-American feeling in Pakistan, uh, the Wall Street. Uh, well, all of Wall Street is shaky right now. The Gulf of Mexico uh, oil spill. Um, there are still issues with uh, with Iran, and um, this is a this is a time I think when uh, the president really wanted to put more focus on. Um, uh, maybe the final uh, stages in Iraq and certainly start to, uh, talking about uh, what's going to happen in Afghanistan. And um, uh, it, 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 it's just, there just isn't time for that right now. Uh, the, the oil situation has dominated uh, uh, American attention and uh, uh, the news headlines for the better part of two and a half, uh, half weeks. And uh, it... Um, uh, as, as uh, delicate as the Korean situation is and potentially dramatic, um, it, it's basically second-page news right now. And the Democrats are going to start saying, if they haven't already, that perhaps Shell shouldn't be drilling for oil in Alaska, and therefore you get back to economic uh, security as far as uh, energy is concerned, and where's the oil come from? Well, and... Uh, this has been a particularly difficult situation for Obama because uh, it was not that long ago uh, when uh, he revamped his stand on uh, off, uh, offshore drilling. And uh, by the way, that did cause a little bit of a positive boost uh, in, in Wall Street. And he defended it uh, by suggesting that the uh, technology for offshore drilling, especially uh, in the deep areas, had it, uh, increased. And now he, um, uh, well, in fact, uh, even as we speak, he is uh, involved in a press conference trying to explain uh, um, all of those things. Um, uh, well, I guess we could say he doesn't have egg on his face right now. He, he probably has some oil smudges. You know, Afghanistan is still the biggie, isn't it, really? Because, I mean, America has said, well, we start maybe draw down uh, next year. They really, the population of the United States, is it just fed up? Do they just want to come home? Yes. Um, the um, attention span uh, has uh, uh, worked its way uh, uh, to the limit, and uh, uh, there is not uh, there just much is not much in the way of interest or support uh, for this. It is not linked as uh, with any vital American security interest uh, at this time, and. Um, uh, uh, 
any, I think, any um, excuse to really uh, tone down the effort in Afghanistan is going to uh, going to be a winner, except for, of course, the political right, which is going to uh, uh, make hay with uh, with this. But they're somewhat schizophrenic. Um, they don't want foreign adventures, but they insist that uh, adventures such as Iraq and Afghanistan are vital for national security. But you can't have it both ways. And uh, of course, there is the dilemma that uh, Obama faces right now. Yeah, and uh, not quite the time for a quiet interval of old-fashioned isolationism. No, um, there is uh, uh, way too much going on uh, in the world, and although uh, we we have a, a number of uh, Tea Party uh, uh, people, um, such as uh, Rand Paul, who are uh, talking about that kind of thing, I, I think rank and file Americans, although they have a little bit of a sympathetic feeling for pulling back, realize no, we're we're, we're in the international community now. To that end, um, everything else going on has kind of overshadowed the uh, release in the last 48 hours of a 52-page national security strategy uh, assessment by the Obama administration, which um, should have been headline news right now. Uh, it, it, it should be a very, very uh, a big story, but um, um, it, it's, it's going to be on the, the back pages for a while, and it'll be a while before I think we start talking about the details of, of this, and they are important, because um, uh, Obama, once again, is trying to make a dramatic break with the kind of foreign policy that existed under uh, his predecessor. Right. Michael Stathis, thank you very much indeed. No, thank you. You know, Paul, uh, Obama wants to make the break. Um, this is the sort of thing that we've been hearing the last couple of couple of uh, years, really, Yes, in this I mean, country. If you go on the American side, if McCain had won, there would have been a big surge into Afghanistan with the aim of defeating the Taliban. Obama has gone for a major surge. It's basically designed to get the Taliban groups to the negotiating table and then start a pretty major withdrawal well before 2012 and the re-election campaign. Um, the problem is that it appears that the more troops you put into Afghanistan, the more opposition you get and the less likely the Taliban are to negotiate. Right. And this is a hell of a quandary. 32 minutes after the hour, I'm Christopher Lee. You're listening to SITREP on BFPS Radio 2. Still with me, uh, Dr. Rosemary Hollis, Professor Paul Rogers and Dr. Martin McCauley. Um, Martin, there is lots of gathering evidence that one of the things that could get the British out of Afghanistan was the fact they haven't got any money to stay there. Yes, <clears throat> and if you look at the Russians, why did Gorbachev say we have to get out of here? Basically, very, very simple, they'd run out of money. We can't finance that war anymore. We have to get our defence costs down. Uh, America is in the same predicament uh, because you have to so borrow. So they quite like us to go, and, and then, then they can and say, and well, we we they can say well, they've gone, and the Dutch have gone, and uh, the Poles have gone, and so on. And we can go as well, and we'll hand it over to President Karzai because the evidence is the Taliban is winning. If you see them penetrating into areas of northern. Uh, Afghanistan, where they were never be- haven't been for 10 years. Mm. The, uh, and there's a lot of Uzbeks on the other side, uh, and they're going to help them and so on. And Central Asia is getting very, very nervous at present. So uh, from the Americans' point of view, they're in a no-win situation. It's a lose-lose situation. Well, what was Haig summoned to Washington for? Was he summoned to Washington, or did he make it his, his first stop? No, I thought uh, he was invited uh, to go. He invited to go pretty quickly. I think yes. they wanted to talk to him very quickly 
once there was a coalition finally formed, yeah. Yeah, exactly, and I thought that was to keep them in until America decides to get out. Yeah, yeah, that's the language of diplomacy. What is the real agenda? And the real agenda is, in fact, we can't afford it. Right. Uh, no European power can afford it. The Americans can't afford it. OK, uh, Paul, that means it's a good time to have a defence review, isn't it? But I've been reading your, um, your briefing paper for the Oxford Research Group. Pretty pessimistic of the value of a SDR at the moment. Um, as it's configured. I mean, what's really good in some ways is the way some of the defence think tanks and even the national security strategy and the Tory and Labour Green papers last year all try to look ahead in the broad sense. They're looking at the big long-term issues, marginalisation, <coughs> radicalisation, climate change and the rest. And that was all good. But the, the trouble is they then said, look, we're moving to a more fragile, uh, uncertain, dangerous world. Therefore, we've got to keep ourselves secure. Uh, so basically, you know, we need big aircraft carriers, we need the nuclear backup and all the rest, almost to, to maintain control. What the Defence Review will not do is go deep to what are the causes of the coming problems. And I think this is its real limit. Uh, you know, is it really essential for Britain to go back 40 or 50 years to having huge aircraft carriers to patrol the world? You know, they're going to be extremely expensive with the F-35. Do we really need a, a full-scale nuclear force? And this is at a time when you have the pressures in Afghanistan. But over all of this, it's all quite short-term. It's not looking longer-term. I mean, you take another uh, side of this. I mean, perhaps you need... Um, or you don't need, but you've got the carrier programme because you, you've tied up so many contracts um, that it would cost you, uh, that people would say, oh, well, we, we can't get out of that, so uh, well, the Navy's we're, done rather well. We're, we're, well, many people in the Navy are actually pretty worried that they're going to be able to afford to keep one Trident submarine, one post-Trident submarine at sea, one carrier at sea. They're going to end up with a two-ship Navy. And no, uh, and no F-35s to drive from the carriers? Well, or quite possibly as well. Uh, the, 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 it's, it's not too late as far as the carriers are concerned. Uh, I mean, we're almost at the stage where we were in the early 1990s when the Eurofighter should have been cancelled by mm. all parties is a cold war relic uh, we still got it slowly coming into service in a new role at huge cost because nobody took the tough political decision to cancel it at that time i actually suspect that the carrier program might be cancelled or even you might go for just one ship without the f-35 yes. uh, but it's i'm not sure it's even going to be in the strategic defense review and, and share it with the french that I, I think that would be quite well. I mean, the French have so much trouble with their single carrier, the Charles de Gaulle, which never seems to put to sea. They're desperate for something. In it its 45 years, it hasn't been to sea much, has it? That's right. Yes. yes, but I can imagine the day that the, uh, the French uh, commandant uh, steps aboard and says, uh, uh, you know, single up fore and aft. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> We're off to the Atlantic. Yeah, I mean, why not? I mean, this is the so-called cooperation. Um, the substantial costs... Um, mean something else to the um, rosemary it's not just a question of uh, what what sort of equipment you've got it's that you've made a good judgment of the sort of country and the sort of nation you want to be in your foreign policy and that's very difficult to work out i don't think it has been worked out in the contemporary climate i i, I think the agonising that went on after the end of the Cold War about what kind of security challenges do we face and other European players face uh, was then overtaken by 9-11. And we were trying to tell the Americans, OK, if you do pursuit of terrorist organisations in Afghanistan, you topple regimes in Iraq, um, Tony Blair being the exception, the rest of us were trying to tell the Americans, then you'll have to do so-called nation-building. Now, if we're broke and they're broke, 
these aren't going to be options. Interventions, nation-building, in the name of low-level security against migration, state meltdown, failed states, rogue regimes, and all the rest of it. So um, I'm not quite sure what this battle defence is going to be for. Martin? I think the year of nation-building by European powers in, in what used to be called the Third World, Africa, uh, Asia, and so on, that era has passed. Yeah. And I think if Afghanistan proves, because anybody with any knowledge of history would have told the Americans 10, 20 years ago, uh, the idea of nation, there's never been an Afghan nation. And there's no way you are going to build an Afghan nation because you're going to take your values and, uh, shall we say, uh, do an operation and uh, put them so into... So what's next? What are we going to do? You leave Afghanistan. It's a system of clans, and the clans will come together. They'll work out who's boss. And yes, but you've, Martin, you've only got to get, as we've got at the moment, it's very likely that a lot of the tribal leaders will call them that, are going to boycott the peace jerga. And everybody sits around and says, but you're supposed to be doing it. And they say, yeah, but we're not going to do it. We have no control over that. Yes, and they're waiting uh, basically to see who gets what, uh, because it all comes down to money. Uh, and they want a strong leader. But there may be very strong leaders. I can see Afghanistan. What's the worst that could happen to Britain or America if they leave Afghanistan? And I suspect they're going to leave Iraq to melt down. We've left, we've left the Americans to look after that problem, haven't we? And no, we well, don't no, have television increasing, cameras. They're increasingly withdrawing. Yeah. Oh. Yes, yes, we'll come back in a minute. Only, the Americans are only concerned about oil in Iraq. That's only part of Iraq. Can I come back to this whole thing about the Strategic Defence Review? We, uh, on this programme, everybody else, exactly the same thing. Right, 18 months of talking about a, a Defence Review, that will sort it out, or sort out procurement, or sort out whether we should have um, one, two, three, four Trident boats, or what if she have F-35s, etc., Paul, it will not resolve these issues, will it? Because it's a much, much more complex matter. It's very much more complex, and the trouble is that it is seen very narrowly in terms of defending Britain or defending its alliance. It doesn't get down to the real major world issues, uh, the ones for the next 20, 30 years. It's almost as though you're trying to keep the lid on things. I call it lidism. It's a mm. lidism approach to security. You're not looking at the underlying drivers. You know, if you want a real marker for the problems of the future... Uh, you take the Naxalite rebellion in India, you know, the, the Maoists, uh, neo-Maoists, who are now causing problems right across eastern India, uh, and people could never predicted that ten years ago. You're actually getting, if you like, a degree of global marginalisation, which is leading to some very tough movements developing. So you're now getting to a point, therefore, that instead of thinking, I mean, first and foremost, you mustn't let the military anywhere near this, uh, this story at the moment. You've really got to, I think you say, well, what about cabinet-led? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, if you, I think you've got to have a proper, more broadly developed security review, not something which is within the Ministry of Defence, even if it involves the Foreign Office and DFID and the rest. I think it's got to be much more at sort of central government level done by the Cabinet Office, and you've got to bring in these other issues. I mean, I know some people think that the climate change issue is a bit passé. It is not, yeah. and it's going to be a huge issue well, for the next you all think about climate change, remember, I mean, you've talked about this on the programme before. I mean, I've just been reading some stuff and saying, look, forget military strategic understanding start thinking about human mm. strategic understanding 
you know, if you can, I mean, in, in the well, crude I'm sense. I'm also thinking that civil military mobilisation, the way you have to mobilise, and there seems to be elements of it around the oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico, yeah. uh, the fishermen and the, the restauranteurs and so on, that whose livelihoods are completely blighted by this, they're all mobilised. And I think Britain has going to, is going to have to think in terms of how do we mobilise in the face of natural disasters? How do we integrate uh, the sense of what it is that we're defending yeah. when we've got a multicultural population? We haven't worked that one out yet. Anybody seen The Guardian today? Mm, yeah. Right, centre page, that double page photograph. It's incredible, yes. It is an astonishing photograph. Yeah. Um, everybody's getting up their Guardians. That's the sort of programme this is, the only Guardian reader on it. Listen, let me tell you what it is. You have uh, a woman who has 11 children, I think, and she's sitting on uh, a scrap heap. It's a waste heap. Uh, and she's got a child sort of stroking her. And that woman is looking for old bits of plastic that she can sell for whatever. Fraction. Yeah. Fraction. Now, that is what broader thinking, deeper thinking about how you solve security issues, that's what it's about. That woman ought to be on the front of every strategic defence <coughs> review. Anybody who hasn't seen the centre photograph... Go and stick it on... In which on, country? On, on, India? In, no, it's, it's Indonesia. Indonesia. Yeah. Indonesia. You know, in, in Sumatra, Indonesia, where is the biggest uh, Islamic population in the world? Indonesia. And but, India second, yes. But look at it in the wider sense. We have, what is it, 7 million millionaires across the world, yet we have uh, 2.5 billion people who survive on $2 a day, and this is well into the 21st century. Yeah. And the extraordinary thing is that, I mean, most of the economic growth of the last 20, 30 years has been concentrated in the hands of about one and a half billion people yeah. who have done very well. Yeah. But the best part of five and a half, six billion people are more on the margins. And this isn't sort of socialist international thinking. No, no this, this is sort of straightforward of, stuff. Yeah, yeah. You've got to, and you should get that right. Yeah. All these SDRs... Uh, uh, you... This is a constrained planet where climate change is just starting to kick in. Yeah. Yes. No, this isn't, this isn't lefty sort of old stuff. This is no. the, the world of the future. But yeah. if you Martin. look at India and you look at the next lights, why are the next lights spreading? Why are, two years ago, nobody would have predicted it. Mm. Why are they doing It's because of the wealth of India. And because the wealth is, is concentrated in a small elite. Mm. And therefore, and India, uh, the elites in India have become immensely rich and are becoming immensely rich, but they see no social responsibility for the have-nots. And uh, internal Indian security is very poor. They don't have a national security system dealing with this. They send in the army. The army, uh, the army won't go in. fights I mean, during yeah, the day, um, or is there during the, the day, and then disappears because at night the next lights take over. Well, the yeah. state system then gives way to gated communities yes. on a global yes. scale. Just like Richmond, didn't it, really? Listen, I want to move this on... Um, because what we're really also talking about is our ability to influence not just the conditions that produce that woman on the on the scrap heap and her child, but is in areas that we used to think, Rosemary Hollis, used to regard itself historically as our period or our area of influence. And I have, you know, I've got your latest book, Britain and the Middle East in the 9-11 era. Um, Middle East has been historically a playground for the British, hasn't it? 
Well, they wanted it originally because it was on the way to somewhere else. Mm. It was on the way to India, so the Suez Canal zone was vital for that reason. And then when Churchill agreed to shift the Royal Navy to oil rather than coal, <coughs> then they needed Persian oil. And those two strategic assets were linked up at the end of the First World War and collapse of the Ottoman Empire by inventing the Palestine Mandate, Transjordan, as it then was, now Jordan. Explain that, what <coughs> happened, very briefly, because and some that, people well, won't know the ins and outs of that. Well, if they can some way imagine the map, if you care about the Suez Canal, which cuts through the Sinai Peninsula, essentially, and links the Mediterranean to the Red Sea. It has done since 1869 or whatever it is. Yes, and if you can envisage the Persian Gulf with Iraq at the head of it, which was another British creation, um, but Persia, Iran, was the big deal at the end of the First World War. Because we wanted the oil? We wanted the for, oil. For our dis, for our we were busy battle, pumping it. Battleships. We got the monopoly. The yeah. government owned... <laughs> there's two episodes in British history where the government has bought shares in an enterprise. One was the Suez Canal and the other was oil in Persia. And uh, those two vital assets had to be maintained. So it... Instead of it being a, a strategic objective for the British to create a homeland for the Jewish people, uh, according to the Balfour Declaration in, in Palestine after the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, and then, of course, a rescue place after the horrendous Holocaust. In fact, the British were thinking rather short-term-ism in terms of what they needed in the Middle East in the name of protecting the Suez Canal <coughs> Excuse me, and oil assets in the Persian Gulf. And they organised or tried to organise the, re the region thereafter, the French organising on the fringes as well. So it was the British and the French for the whole first half of the 20th century. And they didn't make it any better. They carved it up into a state system. And uh, the lines cut across pre-existing tribal, social, commercial relationships. And uh, the state system they introduced was therefore fragile. And by the invasion of Iraq in 2003, a fragile system was fundamentally destabilised. Right. It was OK to go into 91 because we were going in to help people who had been invaded. Um, but it was just rescuing a little country yeah, called Kuwait. Kuwait. It wasn't a big scheme to remake Iraq. No, uh, right. And so, therefore, we have this... Uh, oil painting on every sort of tacticians and politicians wall of Bush and Blair at Crawford, Texas or in the White House or wherever deciding they're going to change or put their, put their impressions of what they want on Middle East policy. They did that but not just simply Bush <coughs> saying to Blair we're going to do this, you better come along with this. Blair's part in this and his, his imagination in this was much greater. Mm. It, New Labour came into power in 1997 with a, a slogan. They were going to make Britain a force for good in the world. And therefore you had to associate Britain with good causes around the world, like rescuing people from ethnic cleansing in Kosovo, mm -hmm. like uh, toppling evil dictators, as in Iraq. And so Blair was already sold on the idea that he was going to save the world. He just couldn't do it with British power alone. So when the opportunity came and the Americans were up for it, they've got their own reasons to want to go into Iraq. <clears throat> he was gung-ho. Yeah, and he'd already made speeches before Bush came along that he might be doing... You know, he, this is the way he was thinking. 
Well, Chicago speech. Ch- Chicago yeah. speech was mm. the most important part. The, the argument is, <coughs> somebody put forward the argument that the success of the Sierra Leone, shall we say, episode, yes. where apparently the local British commander acted unilaterally without getting political support, that that then said to uh, Tony, look, this is marvellous, we can do this elsewhere. And so on. the argument is, you can do that everywhere. So therefore this influenced him. Okay, listen, Rosemary Hollis, this book, Britain and the Middle East in the 9-11 era. Somebody, who was it wrote on the back of it? It was, it was a great contribution to the understanding of it. I think it was something like John Snow or something like that. What does he know? What does he know? Listen, <laughs> uh, uh, not... I mean, Mendes Campbell uh, said it tells you all you need to know about the British-American relationship in the contemporary era. Yes, yes, another lived term. Um, right. It's Mingy Pals' sell-by date. Yeah, wait a minute. Um, it's, it's not far away from this, because uh, uh, ha- we've got uh, Richard Norton Taylor, the Defence and Security Editor of The Guardian newspaper on, um, because uh, the United Kingdom is supposed to be having an inquiry into the level of security and intelligence agency role in the torture abroad of terror suspects, but it's getting complicated. Um, Richard, why is it getting complicated? Well, we don't want to talk about allegations of complicity in torture, mainly by the Security Service MI5, but also um, possibly uh, Secret Intelligence Service MI6. And, of course, we've had um, examples and, indeed, inquiries into uh, British soldiers abusing Iraqi civilians uh, being detained there in Iraq. Now, um, the Conservatives and opposition promise a judge, an independent judicial inquiry, and the Liberal Democrats uh, echoed this, in fact, spoke more strongly about the need for such an inquiry. William Hague, the Foreign Secretary, let it out, blurted it out, uh, to unknown, or came out of the blue, say, Whitehall officials everywhere, including the Cabinet Office, which will be responsible for this thing. William Hague said um, in a radio interview last week that we will have a judge-led inquiry into these allegations of torture by Britain's security and intelligence services. Um, uh, mainly in the context of uh, by, uh, by U.S. held detainees, terror suspects, I should say, and, and, and British citizens and residents who ended up in Guantanamo Bay. But some of those um, people that ended up in Guantanamo Bay, they're trying to get compensation out of uh, the security service yeah. and, and, and MI6, so that sort of gets in the way of any inquiry, doesn't it? Well, exactly, and that is precisely what officials uh, off the record said uh, one of the problems will be. Uh, when will this happen? When will this inquiry happen? Of course, the people, without being too cynical about it, have a vested interest in being a very narrow inquiry and, and putting it off. Now, um, the, the interesting, well, two, two points, really. One is that the, gov- uh, the government, uh, the Labour government ministers, plus uh, MI5 and MI6, wanted for the first time to have the evidence in this civil compensation claim brought by people who were... Um, um, uh, British residents who were, who were then uh, detained in Guantanamo Bay in a civil suit uh, to have the, for the first time it would, it would be evidence in a civil suit, a civil case, a civil trial, uh, secret. Now, the appeal court threw that out, so there may be a long argy-bargy about all this, with, uh, with the end result actually being MI5 and MI6, and the taxpayers paying these people a lot of um, compensation to keep the whole, all the evidence out of court. Right, can I try you on another one? I hear, or we hear now, that the Savile Inquiry into what took place in December 1972 um, in Derry is at last to publish. Why has it taken so long when it's... When did they start? 1998? 1998. They started, actually, the oral hearings. It was officially opened in London Derry's Guild Hall in the year 2000. It has taken a long time... Um, 
if you listen to Lord Savile, uh, a very bright law lord, uh, uh, critics, they would say he should not have gone uh, to all, through all the evidence about one incident, through so many witnesses, through so many witnesses. Um, but uh, he felt he should, and he didn't, and I think Savile himself was concerned about... Uh, about um, people saying it was, it was skewed or he took shortcuts uh, and it wasn't there a fair, full and thorough inquiry. It is certainly that. Now, his conclusion may be um, very short. Um, some people will say um, he could have uh, said that or concluded that a long time ago, whatever the conclusions are going to be. We don't know yet. Uh, talking about uh, civil cases, it is possible that uh, in the Northern Ireland jurisdiction, uh, victims' families will um, try and sue um, British soldiers. So the end, the the publication of the inquiry is it June, June fourteenth, June the fifteenth, fifteenth yeah. won't be the end of it, will it? It'll be, it'll be end by the shouting, probably. I mean, it's a, it's a five thousand page document. There's a sixty page summary, and uh, I think the army is actually quite nervous about it, what it will say about the Paris. Right. Okay. Richard Norton Taylor, thank you very much indeed. Um, war gaming. I saw some stuff that was saying the Israelis are wargaming against Iran a few days ago. Now, how does that tie in with <coughs> Iran's sense of urgency to tell the world they're willing to deal on nuclear fuel processing? I mean, is somebody, Rosemary, is somebody bluffing here? Or if you're an Israeli, of course you'd be wargaming against the Iranians. Of course you would, but also you'd like people to know. You'd like it to <coughs> be evident that you were. In, in order to keep the pressure up to try and do something other than war about Iran. But the, this would perhaps satisfy those who would say um, that uh, Mr Ahmadinejad uh, is suddenly making noises, and he was making noises yesterday and saying, look, if the Americans don't look at this offer that we have made, we Iranians have made, to send uh, nuclear fuel for processing abroad, it's going to be their last chance. And uh, well, hang on. I don't, I don't think so, because the Iranians have prepared for war as well. Yeah. And they will take retaliation in a quite different way. Uh, they won't be lobbing nuclear bombs at Israel. <clears throat> they will be attacking Americans in their installations all down the Arab side of the Persian Gulf. They will get their friends in Iraq to create mayhem for the Americans in Iraq. And they have Hezbollah at, uh, at the ready to take on Israel, the Americans' staunchest ally in the Middle East. And they will have the Arab street in uproar. OK. Um, and then the Americans bomb Iran. That's the ultimate weapon. You bomb around flat. But what will they have achieved? You knock out Iran. Yeah, but the point is that just is a start of a, what will eventually be a worldwide conflict. One of the really big changes compared with four years ago, I mean, four years ago, Oxford Research Group did a report on the consequences of war with Iran, which looked at an American assault. What has changed in the last four years is the Israelis now have the military capabilities to do it themselves in a way they didn't have four or five years ago. Uh, they've got the long-range planes, they've got the cruise missiles, they've got the uh, the drones, they've probably got facilities in northeast Iraq and certainly Azerbaijan. 
they could actually do serious damage to the Iranian nuclear and missile capabilities. The results will be disastrous because the Iranians, as has been said, could respond in all kinds of ways, and they would start by withdrawing from the non-proliferation treaty and going all out to develop a nuclear capability. But that may not stop the Israelis, uh, and this is why I think we really are moving into very dangerous times in relation to relations between Israel, the United States, and Iran. And if we're worried about North <coughs> Korea and other issues, I think this could be a much bigger one inside in the next six to 12 months. Okay, okay. Hang on, hang on, because we've only got a couple of minutes, and I want to go to Dunkirk, uh, because there is um, the, our SITREP correspondent, Jamie Gordon, who is watching the little ships um, uh, arriving in Dunkirk from uh, Ramsgate. That's right, Chris. So, yes, they've um, pretty much all arrived. There's 50 due in, I believe, and we've been watching them arrive steadily over the last hour or so. You know, names like Mary Jane, the Dowager of London, the Bluebird of Chelsea, all these vessels were here 70 years ago, going in the opposite direction, taking British troops back with them. It's a cracking atmosphere, and um, there's been a lot of press coverage in the UK, but certainly the French have come out here in their hundreds. There's uh, a Glenn Miller-type band, a swing band, if you like, playing lots of French and British people mingling together. Um, there's cadets from HMS Collingwood chatting to veterans, I presume, of, uh, of 70 years ago. So it's quite a wonderful atmosphere at the moment. And the, and the French are renaming some of the streets? So, uh, yes, they are. They've, uh, some street names in Dunkirk will change forever. To, on Sunday, uh, things like the Rue de Little Ships, uh, the Rue Admiral <laughs> Baxter, and of course, Rue de Bertrand Ramsey. Right. Uh, he's the man that organised uh, the evacuation, of course. And one of the last admirals to be forgotten, because he died shortly afterwards. Um, when's it all finished? When, when do they all come back? Well, they all come back on Monday, and in between times, there's uh, a lot of memorial services. There's a lot of parties as well, um, but uh, we'll be covering it quite extensively on, on BFBS Radio 2 over the weekend. So uh, we'll keep you in touch. Thank you very much, Jamie. Jamie Gordon there in Dunkirk. Listen, we've only got a few seconds left. Um, if the French are doing this properly, aren't they? I mean, we're not doing very much at all, Paul. I mean, we don't remember these things very much. We don't get virulent out too often nowadays. Not too often nowadays, but I mean, we are, you know, the, the, this is getting into times past. Uh, I think it's a lovely idea that they're having this sort of, I mean, combining memorial with partying, in a way, is, is a good way to do it. Yeah, and Dunkirk, of course, the disaster that we called a victory. <clears throat> yes, I know. Yes, yeah. that's the irony. Yeah. If you look at the Russians, they see uh, VE Day as a great day. Right. OK. Well, we're going, because it's a great day. That's it for this week. My thanks to Rosemary Hollis, Marla Corley and Paul Rogers. If you've missed anything, bfbs.com, sit rep. Bye now. Sit rep with Christopher Lee.